I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When I was a kid, my dad was a cop. And we spent five seasons of Loose Units, the podcast, talking through his cases, but the unexplained and the paranormal kept rearing their heads, because the story doesn't end when the killing is done. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. This season on Loose Units, The Shadow Files, we've spent quite a while hopping all around Australia, visiting some of the sites of the most horrific crimes in Australian history, but this week, we're heading back to Sydney. Specifically, back to the 1980s. Now, the 1975 Family Law Act was a hugely significant reform implemented by the Whitlam government, and it changed the way that divorces happened. Under this new system, couples didn't need to demonstrate grounds for a divorce to get a divorce. Now, it was because of this change in the legal system that one man snapped, carrying out a series of utterly horrific crimes. Dad, this week we are looking at something called the Family Court Bombings. Now, there is a special airing on the ABC right now, and it's a multi-part series. And me being a little bit dense and needing to make things a bit linear, I was really struggling, I think in part due to my ADHD, to only having part of the picture. So we were having a bit of a chat about what we wanted to cover next in the series. And as you recall, last week I said we weren't going to be covering anything that was about death and you said actually there is this new series on the ABC and it's really great and it's all about the family court murders and I didn't actually know what these crimes were but you pointed out that they were taking place during your tenure in the New South Wales Police Force and not only that that it might benefit people like me whose brains are flipping all around the place to have a slightly more linear you know, digestible one, just something kind of simple to help them break down exactly just the facts of this case. Yeah. So this week we're looking at the family court bombings. Now, like I said, I didn't actually know about these crimes. I didn't quite get that this kind of stuff was happening during the 1980s. These crimes were carried out from 1980 to 1985. But the actual moment where things kicked off was in 1979, I believe, on the 17th of March which is when Leonard Warwick, his wife, Andrea, moved out of their house, which is, this is the date of their official separation in terms of the Family Law Act, which I mentioned before. Is that correct? Mm. And they had a daughter. So it was really all over the, about the daughter. Mm. Okay. Okay. So I think it's really important for the listeners to sort of appreciate, and I'm sure most of them will be quite aware of this. And I think I'm placed um, in an unusual 
situation regarding this particular set of tragic events mm-hmm. in that the years that this was happening basically from the beginning to the end of of the offender's sort of career of you know committing these atrocities were the years that I was in the New South Wales police force which is extraordinary and not only that one of the murders took place in my patrol at North Sydney. Jesus. Okay, Sixth so division. This, this is why you wanted to talk about this. Not just because it's being talked about on TV right now, but because you have a unique perspective. I mean, this season on The Shadow Files, we are trying to tie each of these stories that we're delving into, these cases, to specific locations. So I guess you could say that the specific location in this case is your old beat. Mm. Yeah. So when I was actually stationed at North Sydney, mm-hmm. these crimes were happening. And then there was another one that happened um, in Belrose, which is on the northern beaches, Paul, a suburb you know well. Your grandfather taught yes. in the suburb of Belrose. Mm-hmm. And there was the horrendous... Um, it's an interesting story. It's, it's, it's a lot to do with you know judges being basically blown up or shot. Um, but, and here's the thing, there was a murder committed on the 22nd of February, yep. 1980, where the offender's brother-in-law, Stephen Blanchard, was shot dead in his home. Now, his body was found six days later, mm-hmm. Paul, in the Hawkesbury River which kind of ties in a little bit with some of the previous stories we've done, like the man on the cross. He also was found in the Hawkesbury. Now, this murder's weird because it's not actually... We will get to the conviction later, but Mm. chronologically, I wasn't even aware of this because I'm looking at an official timeline of the the dates that are pertinent in the crime. Mm -hmm. So 17th of March, 1979, is when Leonard Warwick's wife, Andrea, leaves him. Mm. Um, And then the next thing I found was a news clipping, I don't know what paper it's from, late news, judge killed by gunshot, Sydney. Mm. Judge David Opas of the Family Law Court Mm. died from a gunshot wound in Sydney's St. Vincent Hospital late last night. Now, was I born in St. Vincent? No, I was born in St. Leonard's, wasn't I? Mm. Yeah, we're all not sure. But Paul, the story with David Opas, he was a judge, but he was working on a particular case, obviously working on multiple cases, but one of the cases involved the offender, Warwick. But Paul, also, what I didn't get to say to you and the listeners is that, I mean, I was a police officer in my early years, super keen, super excited. Well, wait, hang on. You enrolled in the police force when? In 1980. So 23rd of June, you'd be pretty green. Wouldn't you still be at the academy at this point? Yeah, yeah, still at the academy. But so Right. But you were then then let out, so to speak, after initial training. Uh Uh-huh where you'd sort of, you know, you'd get going to the buddy system, you know, getting a sense of what, what being a policeman was like. Yes. And for me, it was honestly so exciting and, and life-changing. Let me, I'll just, let me finish this news clipping, okay? Because mm. I think it's... All right, so we're just going to break down this first crime. So police were told that Judge Opas was wounded when he opened the door of his home in Edgecliff Road, Wallara, last mm. night. Mm. A member of his family found him lying on the ground. So a judge is working in this brand new uh, legal system, which effectively, I mean, it really does help women 
get out of yeah, bad situations. Right. Because it was basically a no fault situation. Because the situation prior yep. was that you had to prove, mm-hmm. for example, infidelity. Right. Now to prove infidelity, um, and it's a bit of a sort of a, a cliche and, and, and you know, it's it's sort of characterized in movies where private inquiry agents they had a a very big role in fact i'd go so far as to say because as you know paul i was a private inquiry agent i got my license but one of the key things about being a pi back in the early days yeah was to break into a um into a house and and, and get footage of the either the male or the female yeah. having intercourse. Well, it's a classic PI trope of photographing a cheating couple in the act and then That's putting right. them in a manila envelope and sliding them across the table. Yes, it's but a- sometimes um, unscrupulous private investigators yep. would get a a prostitute. They then get the the male. Mm-hmm. They would get the prostitute to seduce the male generally in a, in a yep. sort of a third rate hotel yep and then at a, at a predetermined time during coitus the pi with camera mm-hmm. and sometimes even pi with cameraman mm-hmm. would come in and and get the the all important shots action shots which would then be used in court to get a divorce. In other words, it was really, really difficult. And of course, domestic violence, there were many, many terrible things happening with domestic violence. So the court decided to overthrow the Family Law Court Act and they created a no fault. In other words, you could simply go to the court and say, I'm leaving. Right. That that, so, that was supposed to help things, but this particular um, the offender that we're talking about, he he became incensed, and it's a very very touchy, so, you know, topic, isn't it? Now I found a quote here from an article written on the uh, Law Society of New South Wales online journal, and this is a breakdown of the actual crime, and this specific part pertains to what it was like dealing with Warwick in the court. And this is, uh, I'll just, I'll read from the article, okay? Mm -hmm. Family Court Justice David Opas, who had briefly blocked Warwick's access to his child for breaching a family court order, was gunned down at point-blank range and killed on the doorstep of his home in 1980. And that's uh, what the article was referring to, but I'll Mm. continue. The court heard that during one exchange in the family court dispute, weeks before his murder, Justice Opas admonished Warwick for not returning a cot to his ex-wife and warned him, do not play with me. The next time you come to court, you better bring your toothbrush if you are going to carry on like this. Warwick's ex-wife, Andrea Blanchard, told police that not long after that exchange, Warwick said to her during a lunch break near the court, you don't have to worry about Judge Opas. He won't be there much longer. It seems to me, and full disclosure, listeners, we are delivering this podcast. We are recording this podcast the day after a young white supremacist gunned down a bunch of people over a racially, it, it, basically a racially motivated mass killing hate crime over in the States. The, history is filled with a litany of men feeling they're entitled to something and picking up a gun. In this case, you have a man who 
suddenly is encountered he encounters a legal system which says to him he doesn't have complete control over his wife and his family and his response is psychopathic and it continues over the years but the first crime is him snapping going to the house of justice opas and gunning him down now i mean it's utterly horrific but it doesn't it doesn't stop but dad i have a question for you and i'm very curious about this and i'm uh, how did he find out where opas lived mm. Okay, that's well. He obviously knew what he looked like, but I have had a fair bit to do with lots and lots of courts in New South Wales. Yes, the security is extreme, and they've got government drivers, designated drivers, and they pick them up in the morning. They drop them off at the court, but they mm. don't just sort of drop them out the front of the court. There right. is there are special, super high security. Um, entrances. I'll take them down into a um, to a car park. And as an aside, listeners, I, as an antique dealer, two weeks ago got to purchase um, a lot of antiques off a sitting judge in the district court. And I got to go into the building on the weekend and we are talking high security. You don't just get into these places. However, mm-hmm. the offender, he knew what Opus looked like he he must have spent so long sitting off the court he would firstly have had to have found out where the judges are picked up which would more than likely be inside the building so when the car comes out it may well have blackened windows it's a whole fascinating story in itself and something that i don't believe um, is discussed in great detail, but mm-hmm. eventually, and then you've got the whole thing. See, we now know that Opus lived in um, Wallara, and that is around about. Bearing in mind when the judge would be picked up, the traffic's pretty bad in Sydney. Let's say it would take a minimum of thirty minutes mm-hmm. to an hour to get home. He has to follow this vehicle. You would hope that the driver is at least perhaps slightly aware of a car following. Having said that, maybe not because nothing serious like this had ever happened before. So you would become somewhat blasé, laissez-faire about getting the judge. You're in a routine. You get them home. The offender, Warwick, he then has to be... In a situation, and and the there's no parking in that suburb where the judge lives. It's just mm-hmm. that you don't get a parking spot. So over a sort of many many, unless he was extremely lucky, which I doubt, this would have been a very involved, protracted, um, sort of exercise. But he was driven by revenge and and hate, and when you're driven like that. You know, the sort of the preparatory work. And also, Paul and listeners, he lived, the offender lived nowhere near this particular suburb. So the whole thing's just quite extraordinary. And at a certain point, yep. that we don't know what that point is in time, he would have actually nailed the location. I guess something I'm curious about and something that we're going to have to deal with at some point is establish who Warwick is and what he actually does at this point for a living that would give him the skill set required. Maybe not. Maybe skill set's the wrong word, but I'm just curious as to what he did at the time. What, what, what was his well, career? Well, weirdly, yeah. he was a permanent New South Wales firefighter. 
He was a fireman and he was based at Parramatta. You serious? Yeah. But Hang on. So you, you, so you're a police officer at this point in history. Mm. Yep. And there is a firefighter carrying out murders and yep. spoiler alert for later on, not just murders, but bombings. Mm. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah. And what's weird, of course, Paul, that you said we discussed later mm-hmm. is what I went on to, to do as a career. That, no, that's why it's weird. It's 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 I incredible. Mean, you I'm, don't think you don't think of people in the emergency services as capable of carrying these things out, except of course, of course they are. Um, so okay, you have a serving firefighter mm-hmm. who had been in the military, who had been in the, ah okay been, been in, in the, the military, army. right? Oof, this is sketchy. Okay, so the year is nineteen eighty, and you've got this guy, uh, and his the family court deems it necessary to take away custody of his child and he goes nope and he heads to the house of the judge mm. guns him down well he well let's let's just sort of draw that out again so sure, it's a sure. it's, it's it's just a it's it's a family yeah there are children wife judge opus mm-hmm. they're about to sit down to dinner yep it's around about 6 p.m gotcha i don't know at this juncture whether it was summer or winter mm-hmm. i'm erring on the fact that it was probably dark because like a lot of good criminals the cover of darkness is your friend and he has approached this particular house he simply knocks on the door and as fate would have it judge opus answers the door now let's think about what would have happened if it had been the wife or one of the children if it had been one of the children Mm -hmm. 
he would have to have concealed the gun and then said to the child, Can would I you speak please to go and get your dad? Yeah, okay. And then as he would have, because the door then, I assume, although it is, he is a judge, so I'm thinking maybe, maybe the security would have been somewhat heightened. I don't know the situation. I know that judges today, because I've worked for a lot of judges with my you know, my picture hanging business. Mm-hmm. And, and and believe you me, we're talking generally, you know, full on security yep. in their private lives. Mm-hmm. So, but as fate has it, Opus opens the door. As he opened the door, he was confronted with a man, and quite a solid man, might I say, standing there opposite him with a rifle pointed, basically point-blank range, whereby he was shot. And at that point, he would have fallen to the ground. The wife did not hear the gunshot. Really? Correct. Which makes me think that, at least as it's portrayed, based on the information in the documentary, I believe... And maybe we can fact check this later, but I believe the offender Warwick had a silencer on the rifle, which which opens up a whole can of worms in terms of you just don't go and buy a silencer. You can make them. Um, there are techniques, but obviously he would not want an incredibly loud noise to ricochet and be heard by other neighbours in that particular mm-hmm. suburb. It's terraces. Every single place is joined. It's really tight living. And he also would have had his car positioned for a very, very expeditious getaway. So he shot the guy, planning to kill him. Obviously, it was not a shooting to maim, wound, send the message to. In other words, shoot them in the legs. This was shooting to kill. Mm -hmm. The wife who's inside says to one of her children, oh, just go and check on your father. He's been out there for a little while. And, of course, we all know what happens then. And all the emergency services are called. And Judge Opus died later on that night of critical gunshot wounds in St. Vincent's Hospital. Right. The offender gets away. And... Yeah, it's. Um, I'm curious as to what happens then because I'm looking at the timeline of the crimes that's happened here, and the next one doesn't happen for four years. Now, mm-hmm. if his objective is, if it's just white hot rage at having, you know, having his uh, court, having the court case not go his way, mm. is he? I mean, what happens next? In this case, does the does the uh, does another judge pick it up and run with Correct. it? Is that what happens? Okay. Yeah, another judge takes right. over right. from from David Opus. Mm-hmm. And the the guy that took over was Ray Watson, and he was a family court judge. This particular case, I was well and truly working at North Sydney Police Station mm-hmm. in July 1984, and Greenwich is a suburb, Paul. You may recall from the early days of loose units, that's the suburb where we went to the retired matron who had lived in her kitchen 
for 30 years. Um, is this the one with the woman who was electrocuted Correct. and cut in half? Okay, yep. that's, I mean, that's an amazing story. Mm. Is this the blast? This is Bell Rose. Yep, you're right. Just forget out, forget what I said then, sorry. <laughs> no, Greenwich is later. Greenwich not, comes not later. Not that much later, actually. It's only three months later. The next crime that I can see on this chain of crimes carried out by Warwick is... Well, it's the first bombing, and it's carried out in Belrose. This is the 6th of March, 1984. Uh, I'm assuming... So this is Justed Richard Gee, or yep. G? Yep, G. G. Yep, not Justed- G as in butter. Right. Not clarified butter. Not Okay, which is very good on Indian food, but yep, that's yep. a really stupid segue. Hmm. So, there is a deliberate bombing that takes place at Justed Richard G's Belrose home, hmm. and Justed Richard G is... And Richard G is the guy who takes up the Warwick case after Opus. David Opass. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So there's this continuity of, you know, and, and I guess you've got to try and get into the mind of um, <clears throat> of the offender. Yeah. <clears throat> and he, he, um, he was enraged. He had access to, um, you know, explosives, mm-hmm. firearms. Yeah. I mean, if you have a look at some of the photographs, like family photos, there are photos of him, you know, on hunting trips. And one of the photographs of him kneeling with a young girl, the girl's got a rifle, he's got a rifle, and it is, it's it's like a carbon copy of one of the Milat photographs, right? which is kind of creepy. But this particular suburb, Paul, Belrose on the northern beaches where, you know, you basically grew up in that area... Um, similar story, and there was this horrendous uh, bombing carried out in that particular suburb at the home of um, Richard G. I've seen photos of the the house of the building after the bombing. Mm. Jesus Christ, he was not fucking around. This was a this was a big explosion. It was absolutely. They believe. Um, that it may well have been at least a kilo of gelignite. Yeah, so Richard G was actually, he was at home with his children. And, uh, you know, in the morning there was this, um, the offender used timing devices. He also used trip wires. And when this particular bomb exploded, you've seen the photos, Paul. Yes. It literally blew the house. I mean, it's staggering. But the terrible thing is that the offender, because he would have had these houses under extreme surveillance, Mm. and the terrible thing, Paul, is that he knew that there were children in the house as well. Right. So he's just, you know, he doesn't seem to care. He's, He's so focused, and it failed. I mean, the explosion was terrible, but... Everyone survived. And Judge G was hospitalized. He had cuts to his face, legs and arms. Mm-hmm. But he he survived. I have to ask, what is happening at this point amongst the legal system? Now, I actually read somewhere that they had federal police following judges around, making sure they weren't in danger. Because mm-hmm. at this point, you've got... You've got the murder of one judge at their home, very, very high-profile case, mm. and then a couple of years later. So you've got enough time for that really to seep into the subconscious of people culturally. Mm. And then and then you've got the bombing of another. Mm. So at this point, I assume if you're a judge, you are 
very, oh. very nervous doing but the job. But only in, in, in working in family law matters, Paul. Right. So, okay. Okay. So this new court gets... Because I remember in the 90s, there was this massive influx of uh, basically... Um, what would you call it? Uh, kind of men's rights activism mm. springing up, just like yep. loud, furious men railing mm. against the system. And the, the, I mean, that's that's much later. But it would have been really scary to be presiding over these cases at this time. Terrible, terrible. Be- be- because I was a police officer at the time, I'll tell you what happened. Okay. Every single family law court judge in Sydney yep. was given 24-hour mm-hmm. sort of guarding at their private residences. And I remember as a young policeman Mm -hmm. spending weeks and weeks camped outside judges' houses. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry, this is... This is new information. Mm. So you were one. You were part of one of these protective details. Correct. Yeah. That that is fucking huge. Yeah, I know, and I, and I remember they used to give us unmarked, super fast cars, which is really exciting. And this is, you won't read about this in the do- or hear hear this in the documentary because it's sort of an insider's perspective. Uh-huh. But, and this might. So so what they did, they gave us these unmarked highway patrol cars. Yeah. So we're talking five point eight liter. Falcons or five-liter Holden Commodores. Mm-hmm. Like for me, as a as a as a young police officer, you know, I had never driven cars like these. These are these are souped-up racing cars, and every single residence that we um, were looking after, mm-hmm. and and God knows how many judges there were. It, the the but the, the the cost to the state government would have been incredible. Because they were paying police overtime, so you 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 know you were doing your normal thirty eight hours a week, and then they would have this special roster where they would call for volunteers. But the money was just insane. Right. Like the first few hours, time, double time, then double time and a half. Yeah. And you would, but you you had to. It was it was look. It was basically twenty four hours a day. It went on for a long long time, and what you'd do is you'd you'd get to sit. In a um, in a police car mm-hmm. that, that that had all the you know the badges, so it's sort of it was, as a sort of a visual deterrent, but parked close by, you would have an unmarked pursuit car, so that if anything happened, if if, if there was going to be a major you know p- pursuit or chase of, a, of an offender, that they wanted you to have sort of a really sort of amazing motor vehicle, and I remember when we used to get sort of you just needed to you know stop from going insane what we used to do and it was kind of encouraged to a degree one of you would hop into this unmarked car and you'd kind of go cruising just around the the local suburb just that 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 close area just to get a sense you know were there any suspicious people parked nearby but of course i having a bit of a lead foot used to cane it and thrash these really amazing basically racing cars around the suburbs and then sort of slow down and come back as though I hadn't actually driven super fast. Sure. And that was one of the exciting things I, I got to do. But it was it was a great sort of, you sensed, because the families, the kids, the wives, you know, friends, relatives would be coming around and there they was just this incredible police presence. But in my mind and my heart at the time, I thought, I thought it was actually a PR exercise because this offender was incredibly cunning and as if he would, 
you know, come in and do something. I mean, I guess he could have put a bomb underneath the police car that we we're in, which would have been rather depressing. But um, yeah, it, it sort of it went on for some time, and then of course we have the the tragic situation of um, of Pearl Watson. Right. So we've got young John Verhoeven Green in the police force, hooning around on protective services. I that I never look. I've written two books about you, and this is our fifth season of the show, and at no point has this come up. This is no. fascinating. But mm. chronologically, that's the 6th of March, okay? So yep. it's been four years since Warwick has murdered family court judge David Opas. Then he blows up Justice Richard G's Belrose home, and uh, Richard G survives. Then, this is the, that's the 6th of March, on the 15th of April, right? On the 15th of April... The family law court building at Parramatta is destroyed in a bombing. Mm. So now we've got two bombings and a murder. Now, the family law court building at Parramatta at this point, you know, for four years has been the site of some really, really important cases. And mm. we've got judges who are scared for their lives. We've got a we've got a psychopath on the loose. But there's so much more chaos yet to come in this story, including more murders, more bombings and the very, very recent conviction of Warwick. The specials that are airing on the ABC are fascinating, but the one thing that they weren't giving me because they weren't released all at once was a really solid timeline, like a chronological timeline, like a breakdown. So Dad and I wanted to sit down and just beat by beat go through the timeline of the of the murders and the bombings and try and figure things out from a sort of macro perspective. So next week, we are going to have part two of our look at the family court murders. But if you are watching the specials, if you have any insights, if you were around at the time, if like dad, you were kind of behind the scenes, sort of lingering and involved tangentially, please reach out to us. You can get in touch with us at facebook.com forward slash loose units. Every week on Loose Units, we do two things. We do an episode on Tuesday, like this one, where we talk about different cases tied to very, very specific locations around Australia. That's what we're doing this season. And on Fridays, we release spin-off episodes called Loose Ends. That's typically where we go a little bit more off topic. And Dad, I've got a bit of a treat for you on this Loose Ends. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you think of that. Mm. In the meantime, have a great week, everybody. Stay safe. And we will see you next time for more Loose Units. Bye. Cheerio. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.